Hello, everybody. My name is Carl Zunker. This is Leadership is Hard, episode number one. There's a chasm in the communication between researchers and practitioners. This is the podcast and website to narrow the gap. The idea of leadership is complex because leadership is hard. A quick search can take you down an endless rabbit hole about leadership, management, behaviors, traits, books, courses, skills, approaches, definitions, examples, models, theories, personality tests, and a host of other topics. So how do we actually get good at leadership? Not just as a senior executive, but at every stop along the way. From humble beginnings at the start of your journey to the highest levels of leadership, we need to step away from pop psychology leadership and look at the big picture. By exploring what academia has to offer and translating that information into something practitioners can actually use. This podcast and the associated website, leadershipishard.com, will tackle topics ranging from mental fallacies, principles and effects, to ideas about why self-help books don't solve all of our problems. We'll look at current academic theories, construct proliferation, context, and what you can do to become a more effective leader today. We'll also have a wide variety of guests on the podcast, some takes on pertinent news stories, and even explore how leadership impacts other facets of our lives. We aim to present these topics in an unbiased, entertaining, and understandable way. Nobody has all the answers, but we look forward to simply sharing some knowledge and having a conversation with you. There's also an opportunity for our listeners to contribute by sending questions, comments, and concerns for us to discuss. It's time to realize that we don't know what we don't know and do something about it. Join us on this journey as we try to solve the riddle of leadership. Leadership is hard, but it doesn't always have to be. Again, my name is Carl Zunker. I am a 26-year Air Force veteran with expertise in leadership, logistics, and aircraft maintenance. I'm a PhD candidate from the Air Force Institute of Technology, where I study logistics with a focus in industrial organizational psychology, specifically looking at leadership within logistics. I started my leadership journey by being involved with a bunch of community projects growing up throughout my childhood. Even though I grew up in poverty, I've always had a passion to give back, and leadership is my passion. I enlisted in the Air Force when I was 18 and worked my way up to Technical Sergeant E6 before I earned my bachelor's degree and commissioned as a second lieutenant through the Air Force Officer Training School. I finished my master's degree in professional aeronautics with minors in safety and management while continuing to hone my leadership skills in the Air Force, and I'm now using my academic and practical skill to help answer fundamental questions about leadership because leadership is hard. To my right, I have my beautiful wife, Kimberly Zunker, that I'm lucky to have. Kimberly, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Could you go ahead and tell our wonderful listeners a little bit about yourself and your expertise? Absolutely. As Carl mentioned, my name is Kimberly Zunker. I am a lab tech by trade. My bachelor's degree is in clinical laboratory science, and I'm a nationally certified medical laboratory scientist. I spent about three years on the bench working as a lab tech after receiving my bachelor's degree, and then I applied for and received my commission in the Air Force, where I had the opportunity to serve for about four and a half years as a laboratory officer in the biomedical science corps. There, I gained a lot of additional leadership and management skills specific to a laboratory setting. I also led a radiology department. I then got out of the Air Force. I separated and used my GI Bill to pursue my master's in business administration. After I received that master's in business administration, I came over from a hospital laboratory supervisory position into healthcare consulting. 
I work for a company that is laboratory specific, and we answer strategic business questions for hospital and physician office laboratories, as well as independent laboratories all over the country. A lot of those questions are related to various leadership issues. All right. Great. Well, uh, now I think uh, looking at my notes here, you're going to tell us about the format of the podcast as well. (laughs) Absolutely. So in this podcast, what we want to do is we do, as Carl mentioned earlier, want to have guests from a variety of fields. We want to talk to a lot of people with different expertise. That talk will be in a long form interview which will give us an opportunity to talk about things other than leadership, but overall they will have a leadership theme or application. The goal is to get a new podcast out at least once a week, and we absolutely will take questions and comments from listeners at our website, leadershipishard.com. So with all of that said, Carl, why should we trust you on leadership? Oh, I never would. <laughs> no, I like to say, uh, as I look at uh, the field of leadership, I say, trust me, I'm not a doctor. And what I mean by that, I am a PhD candidate. So for a doctoral degree, there's basically four parts of it. You have the schoolwork, the classwork that goes along with it. Then you have your prospectus defense. You have a oral examination where you have to prove that you know what you know. And then you have your dissertation defense. And once the dissertation defense is done, they say, congratulations, you're a doctor. Now, when I was going through the process, academia, I will say from my perspective, is not fun. And, you know, it's a chore to go through everything for the Ph.D. degree. But as I was going through and studying leadership and especially in a military context, being in a a military institute, there wasn't a lot of other people who are passionate about the topic. And that kind of snuffed out some of my desire and my my joy in getting to read and research about it. And I found out along the way that, interestingly enough, do you know what they call a doctor who got D's in medical school? A doctor. That's right. So, again, when we look at everything, 50% of people are below average. That's, you know, lies, damn lies, and statistics. But... A lot of the folks, a lot of the research that was getting done, it was, you know, the advice was don't boil the ocean. Don't try and cure cancer. You just want to graduate school. And as I looked at it, it's, you know, there's this seedy underbelly kind of feel to the realm of academia in the sense that there's a lot of incentive to just get publications. And, you know, I'll I'll cover that in another podcast and talking about the misaligned incentives that were not really pushing the field forward. And on top of that, there's a a difference in the fundamental understanding of what people need in the field versus looking at some of these new and Gucci topics like, you know, blockchain or predictive analytics and certain things that people out in the field like that's great info, but it doesn't help them in their day to day. So for me, I felt handcuffed with a lot of the pieces of education that you weren't allowed to have a independent thought. And the more and more I looked into the field of leadership and did my studies and did my research and did my prospectus defense, I found that we need a common sense approach to leadership. We need a way to take everything that academics are studying and put it into words that the common user can understand. Because right now, you know, I talked about that gulf of or the dearth of communication between practitioners and and academics And the issue I have is, I mean, there are just so many leadership theories out there that if you say, okay, well, I'm a leadership style is 
servant leadership. Okay, well, there's probably about 400 different definitions of, of servant leadership. So what does that mean exactly? If you say you're a servant leader and I'm a servant leader, and you know the people who work with us say, well, Carl's terrible and Kimberly's awesome, that's their perspective on it. How can we both claim to be servant leaders? So what we're planning to do here is take a look at a lot of the theoretical applications of leadership and then say, okay, why are there so many different like, you know, self-help books and, and take home and you can change in four days and stuff. That's just not how things work necessarily. So it's more, more about fundamentals that blocking and tackling, we need to get good at what actually will get you results in leadership. So that's why you should trust me. I am not a doctor uh, by choice and uh, a lot of people that may not be the smartest thing to do, I guess. I don't know. What do you think, Kim? I think we can trust you. <laughs> I have one question for you. What's that? Do you consider yourself an expert? I do not. And the reason being is, you know, the term expert gets bandied around quite a bit. And for me, I've, I view myself as a lifelong learner. And anybody who comes and says, well, I'm an expert in this, I get that we have to do that a lot to build that credibility. And, you know, you put all the acronyms. You didn't read your acronym list. You have an impressive list of acronyms. But we throw that out there as credibility. And the truth of the matter is, you know, for me now being on the other side of it, having a PhD behind your name or having a publication doesn't make you any more credible. It's just, you know, you doing your job. And there's something called the imposter syndrome. Maya Angelou, Tom Hanks, Lady Gaga, a lot of people have it where they're good at something and they view themselves as, you know, kind of a fraud that uh, someday somebody's going to figure out that they're, they're not so good at whatever their field is. And for me, I look at leadership that, okay, I'm not an expert in the sense that I know everything about everything. I've, I like to view it as it's, it's kind of like a leadership map. And maybe I'm a little bit further down the trail than a couple of people, and hopefully I can help some folks along. But there's people who are further ahead than me, especially when you look at the numerous different leadership theories that are out there. There's people who are going to be experts specifically on leader member exchange theory. And there's no way I'm ever going to catch up to them in that one particular theory or field. But what I like to do is uh, kind of view leadership holistically. And I think that's where, you know, I, I can realistically say, yes, with 26 years of experience in the military, being in charge of my largest squadron, I had 550 people in my aircraft maintenance unit, you know, had a lot of phenomenal leaders around me. But just having those experiences, I think, you know, from the 30,000 foot view of, okay, you have a lot of people down to the very micro view of working one-on-one -on -one with people with some very difficult issues and working through those. I think that's where I can comfortably say, yes, I am a leadership expert, but always looking to grow and to learn. And that's what part of this is, not only me helping you know, the listeners or the website helping the listeners, but me learning along the way too, and hopefully adapting and changing. That's awesome. And I lied. I have more questions. Uh-oh. All right, here we go. She's, so, off, she's off script, ladies and gentlemen. So I am curious. You finished your didactic work for your PhD. Yep. You did all of the coursework. Yep. You completed your quals, your qualification exams. A lot of people fail those, but yes, I did. You completed your prospectus <laughs> defense. Yes. You did a lot of research and practically had the dissertation basically complete when you decided to step away. What was your favorite part 
of the PhD program? My favorite part of the PhD program. So, you know, I was uh, active duty Air Force while I went through the PhD program. So for three years and mind you, three years is an incredibly short time for a PhD. Usually it's, you know, in the realm of, you know, five, six years, something like that. But I was being paid to sit and think big thoughts. So my favorite part was uh, getting to sit and think big thoughts. You know, I, I didn't have any pressure on me to say, okay, well, we have this one particular problem. You need to solve it. I got to go in and they said, okay, you know, what are you interested? I said, well, I'm, I'm interested in leadership. And they said, well, good luck with that. <laughs> and I really had to kind of fight to, to prove that, no, it, it makes a difference. You know, it's one of those things that you can have large results with we're trying to you know fight this battle in the military of retention and keeping folks in and especially younger generation kind of you know being a little more transient in their in their jobs they changed the retirement program now that where you can walk away and have some retirement in your pocket when you leave as i look at it the outcomes in aircraft maintenance specifically were a can't fail organization like the mission has to happen but what a leader does is makes people's lives better. And I thought that was, you know, extremely interesting. So I got to just sit and read, you know, I, I can't even count the number of books and academic articles. And I got exposed to a different way of thinking in the sense of being able to kind of filter through some of those academic articles, take away the key points and, and not get bogged down so much. I mean, there was a lot of great stuff there. We had a lot of uh, great instructors at it and kind of learning some of the ways to synthesize data and analyze and use statistics and tell a story with the information was really cool. So there, there was a lot of positive takeaways from it. And, you know, there was there was negatives to it as well. But that's probably a story for another podcast of, you know, the, the specifics of, of why I walked away. But there was a lot of really cool things for me personally. And when I walked away, I felt like I had gotten what I needed out of it. It wasn't a, you know, oh, well, you need to keep going. And, you know, uh, classically, it was kind of, you know, dumb to, to walk away at that point. But for me, I feel like, you know, standing for your morals and standing for what you believe in is a lot more important than having some letters after your name. So. Yeah, absolutely. So I personally believe you can lead in any situation. You can lead as a subordinate, you can lead as a coworker, as a peer, you can lead in the role of a leader. What do you think you got the most of your leadership expertise out of all of these studies or your 26 years of experience? You know, plus? that's, that's a really, really tough question. It's, it's a blend of both. I would say as I was growing up on the enlisted side, you didn't focus so much on, okay, how do I, how do I hone my leadership skills? It's just something that came kind of natural. And, you know, as I look back on it, the enlisted person I was, I would hate to have working for me today. I was great at my job, but I was a jerk, right? It was one of those, okay, well, if you know your job, then that gives you, that gives you license to say whatever you think and feel. And, and that's not the case, but I think having that experience really set me up as I transitioned to become an officer and then, you know, realizing the weight of leading people and, and having them depend on you really put a lot of things in perspective. And I, I went to some of my first coworkers or supervisors, you know, people who were out there that outranked me. And I said, how do you get good at this leadership thing? And they said, well, you, you find a book and you read it and then you, you know, figure out what works for you. And 
And to me, it was a, a really unsatisfying answer in the fact that, you know, they were in the exact same context. They were doing the exact same job. So they should have, you know, in my humble opinion, had a better answer. And uh, I've had a couple of uh, people reach out because I put something about a little bit of this experience in a blog post. And uh, some of the folks I've worked with before said, I didn't, I never said that. <laughs> no, no, no. It's not, it's not everybody. There was a, a few cases and again, I'm, I'm not going to name names and, uh, <laughs> try and podcast shame anybody. But I will say that uh, reading through the academic pieces of it really helped click a lot of things into place. So you can be good at leadership. Like I, I do believe there is some, some folks have an innate natural ability to lead. And according to research, I mean, I fit every physical criteria for, you know, I'm six foot six, white, bald guy, look intimidating, got a gruff voice. A lot of those things, you walk into a room and people are automatically going to listen. But understanding the mechanisms of how some of these leadership things work really helped me put my experience, those 26 years, into context to say, okay, now I understand, you know, a lot of it I was lucky and it worked out. But now understanding, I want to help a lot more people uh, get lucky in a leadership sense, (laughs) if that's okay to say. Yes, it's okay to say. What was your most rewarding leadership experience with you as the leader? You know, there's been a lot of rewarding, a personal level on a professional level, helping people get awards or decorations or doing the, you know, uh, things that they need to do to move their careers forward. There's also when people are struggling and going through difficulties, I'll, I'll say one of the most memorable experiences for me was my last deployment. Now, Kim, you may remember this because I think we had been married for almost a month. And uh, then I got deployed and everybody says the first year of marriage is the hardest. I disagree. The last year of marriage is probably the hardest. But if the first year is the hardest, then just skip half of it and it'll be fine. But we went downrange and had an individual uh, who went through, you know, a very personal experience and, and, you know, had to be sent home. And I was left there to rally the troops uh, for what was left. And we were flying, you know, close air support missions over Afghanistan, getting warheads on foreheads, doing all these things and trying to rally a, a group of people around somebody who had experienced a significant personal loss and you know, when you're downrange like that, it wasn't, they didn't view that this individual went through something and was, oh my God, that could have been me. It could have been my family. I had the same feeling. So trying to get everybody to refocus and just end so successfully on, on what we did and, and do such a great job. I think for me, that was probably my most rewarding uh, leadership. It was one of the least fun, don't get me wrong, but probably the most rewarding experience I've had. Yeah. Leadership is hard. (laughs) Somebody should, you know, make a podcast or a website about that. Mm -hmm. What about your most, I don't want to say challenging, because what I actually want to know is where you really screwed up, where you failed. So it's interesting for me. I am uh, a bit of a perfectionist. So every time I left any job, so we move pretty frequently in the military. You go and do a job and, and then graduate on to the next thing. Every time I left a job, I looked at it and I was like, man, I wish I'd known then what I know now. I could have done so much for the people. So it's always those ones of, you know, people having trouble and people struggling. And for me specifically, it involved individual that went through personal problems, had his own personal demons. And I don't feel like, you know, I personally did enough to 
try and ensure that he was going to be okay. And after his time in the military, we can only take care of who we have there, but not to get too in depth on, you know, a podcast, but the individual committed suicide. And it just felt like we had failed, you know, as an organization. And we held the individual accountable for the things he did. And that's part of it. But uh, looking back, I would always say anytime you have to go through anything negative with somebody, you need to you know, have all the, the bumpers up, if you will. You need to make sure that all the things are there for, for them to rebound. Because again, that was, um, you know, significant insight on not knowing uh, exactly what everybody is going through. So I find it really interesting that both of your examples of what would be what you would consider a success in leadership and what you would consider something that was less successful, they are not of people doing their jobs. Now, in the first case, there wasn't a component of getting the mission done and rallying the troops, but there was also a significant component of taking care of the, the troop affected, of the airmen affected. And I'm curious as to how much of that, not that you 26-year Air Force veteran are going to be able to answer me, <laughs> but how much of that is the military mindset where, as an officer, you are responsible for personal well-being, housing, things like that, of your troops, whereas that is not a responsibility that extends to leaders and managers on the civilian side. That's an interesting question, and I, I do want to uh, fix the paraphrasing of the failure being less successful. That was a utter catastrophe. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't a failure. It was, uh, you know, one of those things that I'll never get over. And you're right. I've, I've referenced uh, people more than the job specifically, but the reason is, and I don't think it, it may be more military centric, but it shouldn't be. And what I mean by that is I worked for an individual. So, you know, another little side story about me that you're well aware of, but for the listeners is earlier in my career, I had to come on a humanitarian. My mom was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and I was on a different trajectory. They were working to send me uh, for a White House fellowship, was uh, going through the application process for that. And I had to get sidetracked and, and take a humanitarian assignment to take care of my mom. So she moved in with me and, you know, we were going to take care of her. Well, my boss at the time, you know, this guy, he had sat me down. He told me a story about his mom going through pancreatic cancer. He just treated me like a human being. Now, he had always done this, and I would have ran through a wall for that guy. I think the disconnect that we have on the civilian side is just that, the mentality of, well, I need to care about what you do exactly at work, because how much room do we have on our plates, right? How much attention do you have to give? You can't, you can't pour from an empty cup. And if there's no mandate saying, okay, you need to do these things, a lot of times people won't realize, like, you know, just stopping and talking to somebody and giving, you know, a, a little bit of empathy is really going to go a long way. So I, I think for me, I've always used, you know, my North Stars for, for leadership are empathy and transparency and not in a theoretical context of, you know, any kind of emotional IQ has to be high or anything like that, but just the fact of treating people like human beings. And I think when you view it through that lens, the, the crazy thing is the less you, you know, care about some of the more measurable things, the better people do, the more you 
treat them like a human and and the more you you know genuinely care for their success not only you know their home life or anything else but the more you take care of people the better they do and then the better you do so it's this uh you know self-fulfilling prophecy of awesomeness yeah i've had the same experience where both of my air force laboratories we were like family and it really helped it, it we didn't always have solid staffing because in the military you have all these additional duties and when you have a small flight of eight to nine people and you get folks pulled for a bunch of additional duties well then you have to do more with less right everybody has <laughs> to do more with less but being a family really helped everything that was a challenge. So if we'd have one person deployed and another person doing an additional duty, everybody is a little bit strained, but we're all working together. We, we felt like a family. When I left the Air Force and went to my first civilian laboratory, it was as if once I got trained, I was an inconvenience for any vacations, specifically for the birth of our first child. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I ended up working, there were 101 hours on the paycheck immediately before the start of maternity leave, working night shift while also pursuing an, an MBA. And it was a very busy time of my life, but well worth it. With all of that said, the difference in the organization, there was a lack of a family. It was, I was attempting to get everybody prepared for my absence because I felt that was the right thing to do. I was going to be gone for 10 to 12 weeks. That's a long time. But there wasn't this welling up of any kind of solid leadership to say, hey, you don't need to worry about this. We've got it. You're having your first child. It's it's fine. We've got you. It doesn't matter. The part of that is that they're so short-staffed all the time. There is no bench to speak of. So once any individual was gone from our night shift group, somebody from day shift was staying late. Somebody else from day shift was coming in early. Somebody was working overtime if somebody had to call in sick or take scheduled PTO. So they have their staffing so lean down that they're a skeleton crew all the time. Well, in looking back on it, though, I mean, 101 hours right before the birth, it, she turned out fine. Everything came out okay. It's not a big deal. She's six years old. It's all good. She <laughs> made it. But my point is, whether it's civilian or military, it should make a difference. And I've had multiple folks. So after I transferred to a different location, there are multiple folks from that location that still reach out to me to this day because there I was in more of a leadership role and we did have more of a family. After my manager and I left, we left around the same time, I received a few messages uh, that said things along the lines of if they would just treat us like we were human beings, it would be okay. But oftentimes on the civilian side, that may not necessarily be the case. It, it's really easy when you're busy and overworked for everyone to become a cog and to no longer be a full human being with a, with a purpose and with an entire life uh, and all kinds of things they could be struggling with yeah, outside of work. We've talked about that, uh, the idea of Sonder from a psychological perspective, which will be you know heavily focused on in future episodes. But as you look at it, you know, it's interesting to, to kind of think about the 
military versus civilian side, and you've grilled me quite a bit, and I, I did not do nearly as effective a job of checking your credentials because maybe I'm not qualified to do so. But uh, I really appreciate you, you know, kind of sharing that perspective because then, you know, the things that we take for granted in a lot of leadership things, not only, you know, okay, you had a kid, you know, what happened on the back end of that in a job where you really couldn't get away for pumping milk and and everything else that, that goes along with it? And we've discussed before for the lab, a lot of times, you know, a higher percentage of the employees, the, the further down are females and a higher percentage of the people in leadership roles are males that you don't recognize a lot of these things. So, you know, that leads into blind spots and, and things like that. And I don't want to go uh, too far into all these things. I want to leave a little bit uh, of something held behind for future podcasts, but it does give us a uh, little bit of a segue into talking about future topics and questions that we'll be looking at going forward. So as I look at, you know, a lot of the leadership material, some of the things that we're going to be talking about is what is construct proliferation and why does it matter? Things that, uh, you know, talking about how many different leadership theories there are, servant leadership, leader member exchange, authentic leadership, adaptive leadership, ethical leadership. And then on top of that, if you go to the bookstore, you can find, you know, uh, a host of books that are going to tell you this is the way to lead without exception. So we're going to be talking about that. We'll be talking about things like, uh, so you're trying a new leadership style. What could possibly go wrong? And, uh, you know, we've, we've talked quite a bit between you and I about uh, leadership being more like a toolbox than anything else. And some of those theories are going to be more specific to more akin to being tools than the toolbox itself. So for me, I view transparency and empathy more as the toolbox. And then I can take some of these other aspects and, and put them in there. And it's, it's a pretty much using the right tool for the job. So if you consider one leadership style as a wrench and the other as a hammer, you know, the wrench is going to be great for tightening up pipes, but it's not going to be so great for driving nails. So what could happen if you misapply a leadership style or try to apply a leadership style that nobody wants to see where you're at? All right, so then we're also going to be talking about uh, some of the different axioms in academia, which means just you know, things that aren't necessarily theoretically proven, but they make so much damn sense that they work, right? So we talk about Occam's razor, the Dunning-Kruger effect, Prado's principle, the Hawthorne effect, and mental fallacies in general. We're also going to be talking about why self-help is a little bit self-serving, why they don't necessarily work, because if they did, you'd only buy one book and we would be done. So that, that leads into some of the pop psychology We'll be talking about current theory and why it's a mess. We're going to be talking about uh, some of the publication issues that we have for practitioners impact or impact factor. So when we talk about publications, impact factor will make a little more sense. Does it matter to what the practitioner is doing or does it matter for the author and what they're trying to actually get their citations up to? Well, I wanted to chime in that all of those things, not everybody's going to be familiar with. A lot of them are going to be familiar with, you know, zero to two of them. <laughs> so I do want to emphasize that we will be translating, defining, helping uh, the practitioner to actually understand all of this academia and more. So there will, this is not an all-encompassing list. Yeah. And uh, as I go through uh, a lot of this, just like uh, saying the word construct, for me, I understand what that means and I know how to break it down into layman's terms. 
but it's going to take a very long time. That's not something that we can do when we're just giving a quick overview. Another thing I want to hammer home is context, context, context. I'm going to be talking about that on almost every podcast, if not every podcast, just to understand that uh, we have to understand where we are, who we're trying to reach, what our skills are, what our blind spots are. We'll talk a little bit about traits, behaviors, categories. We'll break that down. There is goodness in everything, but understand that there is no one way. You know, some of these folks out there say, I don't want to throw any one particular thing under the bus, but, you know, if you are trying to lead like so-and-so or, you know, do this thing like somebody else, well, that's great, but you're not them. And maybe you don't need to be, right? How does somebody who is working in a fast food organization move up from working at the counter to being the manager? There's, there's nothing wrong with it. So, you know, maybe we need to hit on some of those skills to, to help you along that journey as well. And I think for me, you have transparency and empathy as the two main things that make up your toolbox. For me, authenticity is a lot of it. I I am no good at being anything or anyone other than exactly what I am. So while context matters and I need to adjust and be adaptable to the situation and the person, I can never be anybody but me. So if a book is trying to tell me that I need to be more charismatic or I need to be more energetic or I need to be bubbly or anything along (laughs) those ways, it is just not going to happen. Now, is there a difference between transparency and authenticity? That's that, you know, is another interesting point. I think they cover a lot of the same ground. But what you're hitting on there, like a lot of people, a Myers-Briggs personality test will be looked at by some folks and, oh, an introvert can't be a good leader. One of the best leaders I ever worked for was extremely introverted. So, I mean, he would go out and he was a 06 full bird colonel on his way to being a general officer. And anytime he went and spoke to people, he had to take time afterwards to recharge. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's not that you can't be a good leader if you're not energetic or bubbly or outgoing or, or any of that. It's just that, you know, a lot of the quiet leaders are, are highly effective So I think there's a lot of stigma, too, that we need to talk about on, you know, well, I'm not good at this particular thing, so I can't be a leader. That's not the case. And the idea that, oh, everybody can be a leader, that's true, but maybe there's a limitation on, you know, how good you can get at certain things. So focusing your energy wisely on what's going to get you the most bang for the buck. So I would like to thank you for taking the time, Kim. I would like to thank you for sitting with me and indulging me on this journey that I'm taking as it kind of hits on both of our passions. So thank you very much for being here. Always. Always is your always response. Always. (laughs) Is there anything else that you'd like to add? I think we covered quite a bit. I think we are good to go. (laughs) Good to go. Good to go for another 99 episodes or so. At least 99. Okay. Well, again, thank you for your time. Please visit us at leadershipishard.com, and we look forward to seeing you on the next podcast. 